Hello, everyone. Welcome to the latest edition of Airing It Out, Files from Leahy's Broadcast Booth. My name is John Leahy. Delighted to have you along for the podcast this week, as we are every week. Uh, We've had some great shows as of late, some great episodes. I'd like to encourage you to go back and listen to anything you might have missed. Please consider subscribing to the podcast. Uh, You can find the podcast on Apple or Spotify or virtually any other place that podcasts are heard. Last week, uh, I did not have a guest with me. I went through some life updates and uh, talked a little bit about Alzheimer's disease, which is uh, very personal to me right now as my dad is struggling with it. So if you missed that episode or any other uh, episodes that I've done here, please feel free to uh, head on back and listen to anything you might have missed. We're going to get back to uh, our guest regimen today and uh, we're speaking today with a, a good friend of mine, a, a guy that I crossed paths with, with in the minor leagues in 2010. Uh, he's based down in South Carolina, and he's a very, very intriguing guy. You know, he's uh, been involved with sports casting, but he's also a professor, and we're going to talk about that. Uh, we're going to reach down to South Carolina for this week's episode. It's going to be a real treat. Joining me is my good friend Gary Griffith, and uh, Gary, it's so great having you on the podcast. Thanks for spending some time today. Oh, you're quite welcome, John. Thank you for having me on airing it out. Well, uh, it, it's a big thrill for me, and, and I'm looking forward to talking with you about your background. And I know we crossed paths back in 2010. It, it was one year we worked together. I was with the Florence Freedom, and you were in normal Illinois with the Corn Belters. But uh, that one year forged a friendship that lasts to this day, and uh, it feels like we've been in the booth forever, doesn't it? It does, and that one year... Uh, is uh, very vivid to me. I've kept in touch with you, uh, and I've had a uh, run across a few or come across a few other people in sports kind of the same way where I've forged a friendship, and even though you don't see uh, people like you uh, for a long, long time, you feel like you're, you're friends, and you never uh, they're never far from your memory, and I've always said, and I do mean it, I hope one day to be in a broadcast booth with you. Maybe we can work a game together. You know, that would be fun. And I, what the cool thing would be, if you and I ever did a game together, we'd have the two converging accents, right? I'd have the northern New England, and you'd have, <laughs> you'd have the southern. And, boy, would that be fun for our audience to, to listen to. And I can Well, t- as a, as a, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> when you point out the north and south, I'm sorry. Um, as I've often said to you, uh, you know, by the way, congratulations on 16 years of Merrimack Hockey. Uh, here in the South, at least for me, as I said to you, uh, I didn't grow up with hockey, so icing for me is something on a cake. But, uh, <laughs> the, the contrasting um, uh, accents, I think, would work well. And uh, having taught speech for many, many years, uh, I know from the textbooks I've used, they, 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 they'll talk about the reason a Boston accent would be uh, foreign to my ear and mine to a Boston accent we're just used to hearing certain regions of the country and how people speak. Um, but, you know, I lived in Massachusetts for, gosh, three and a half years. You can um, follow up on that if you'd like to. So I have a Massachusetts connection, so I've, I've been there. Well, yeah, why don't we talk about that? Uh, I, I don't have that actually in my notes, but uh, yeah, please let us know. How did you come across uh, working in Massachusetts? Well, uh, it is directly uh, – Sports and academics are intertwined. As I said to you before we went on, I actually did graduate work in a seminary over in South Hamilton, Massachusetts, and that's where I met my wife. Uh, we've been married uh, all these many years, so 37 years, I believe, this year, if I'm doing my math correctly. And uh, I lived there for three and a half years, I believe it. Yeah, three and a half years uh, in Massachusetts. And then I have a very good friend, a very old, dear friend named Dr. Doug Challenger. He lives over in Amherst. He and his wife, Lori, and he teaches up at Franklin Pierce. And like you, he's quite a renaissance man. You and he would get along very well. He loves to play. Oh, he plays guitar and mandolin. I think you and he would hit it off very, very well musically. Oh, that's great. Uh, you know, I've uh, I've made music sort of a, an important part of my life. So, yeah, that, that actually would be great. But I wanted to talk about how you actually got into sportscasting. And it's a really fascinating story because uh, you were originally going to go into the seminary, right? And, uh, you know, your path changed and your wife really influenced you to go into the sportscasting, right? So maybe you could share that story with us. Yes, we often, excuse me, uh, kind of think about that. Uh, I did go to seminary there at Gordon-Conwell in South Hampton, Massachusetts, met Debbie, 
and uh, went on actually and did another degree at Duke Divinity School with the intention to, uh, I hope, I'd hope that time to teach on a higher level. Um, and then I was turned down for PhD work in biblical studies or New Testament studies. I'm not sure which I would have tried to have gone. Well, I did try to go into it. And I was rejected, John, uh, numerous places, just quite a few places. And finally, I, uh, I, I got the hint, so to speak. And somewhere in that mix, Debbie, and I'm paraphrasing, of course, Debbie said, well, why don't you try you know, sports casting? At that time, we were in Durham, North Carolina. So youth and naivete sometimes is a volatile mix or a blessing. So I go cruising in over to WCHL, which at that time was the anchor radio station for the University of North Carolina, the Tar Heel Sports Network. It may still be. I really don't know. And I just kind of cruised in there and said, hey, look who's here to help you. Well, their reaction was, I don't think you get it, kid. You know, we're the anchor station. We, we've kind of got this covered. You know? yeah. But the, the guy there, and I don't remember his name, uh, he said, well, would you like to do a five-minute report on Duke football? And I, I took it. And so they, I would go over there, and they would record, uh, record me. You know, you know how people say, well, uh, Duke is playing Maryland today, and here with the reporters, Gary Griffith, and they go to a pre-recorded uh, spot. So I started doing it that way, and it just kind of took off um, from that point on. And I have been, been very blessed to have kept my hand in it. And as I've said to you and others, I'm still flying below the radar and still very much involved in it. In fact, I was thinking recently, a year or so ago, that when I thought of my persona of myself, it was it was really as a sports broadcaster more than a professor, even though those two have been very intertwined uh, for many, many years. Absolutely. And I, I should mention before we go further that you are the Associate Professor of Speech Communication at Francis Marion University, and I, I would like to talk to talk about that shortly. But you've been doing a play-by-play for baseball, football, and basketball for oh, in upwards of 30 years now. And, and Gary, you also were the New Mexico Sportscaster of the Year four times. You also are in the New Mexico Broadcasters Association Hall of Fame. I'm wondering how uh, that all came to be. Uh, I, I know I read that you have family in New Mexico, but uh, tell us about your time there. Well, I, I might have to have an edit here. That's actually an accolade that goes to a man named Dr. Donald Elder. He is the four-time uh, New Mexico. He is one of my references, and he I put him down and gave him those accolades. Uh, I do have family in New Mexico. Uh, I have a brother-in-law. Uh, he lives in Albuquerque. He's a lawyer, but I have brothers and sisters-in-laws literally all over the world, including one sister-in-law in France. So as much as I would like to take uh, that particular accolade or accolades, those belong to a man named Dr. Donald Elder, which, again, ties into my relationship with you because he and I have kept in touch over the years, kind of kindred spirits, uh, much like you and I have become. Um, and he's a great broadcaster in his right and also a professor. He kind of has the dream job that uh, I wouldn't mind having at times. Uh, so that's where that comes from. Okay. I apologize for that. I must have uh, gotten some bad information or, or misread it. But uh, thank you for uh, clearing that up. Um, I, I know you've done a lot of work for the uh, for college sports, Gary. You've, you've done play-by-play uh, for the College of World Series champion Coastal Carolina University. And uh, you also did the College World Series in 2018. So uh, how big of a thrill was it to be involved with, with that adventure? Oh, that was no doubt. That was a high point. Uh, of doing baseball, at least in, in that period of my life, and uh, I had I had done uh, the, the the spring season for Coastal, and I had already committed to return to West Virginia to do a um, a summer of collegiate baseball, and I had done that team, the West Virginia Miners, the year before. Well, uh, you know, the season baseball season of, of, of Coastal was kind of coming to a coming to a close and I followed them up to NC state and they won the uh, super regional and qualified for the world series. And I, and, and I thought, well, I've already told these guys in West Virginia that I'm, I'm coming on up and I'm, you know, if I had it to do over, I wouldn't even blink. I would just say, Hey, West Virginia, I'll be there in two weeks. But So I went on up to West Virginia and uh, coastal goes down to LSU. They had to beat LSU the best out of three. Well, 
everybody was saying, well, this won't take long. Uh, LSU will beat them in LSU two games and they'll be back home. I'm sitting up in West Virginia uh, where I was staying, and, and where I was staying actually did not get ESPN, didn't have the games on TV. So I was getting these texts from people saying, did you see this? Did you see that? Did you see this? <laughs> I'll have to text them back and go, uh, actually, no, I didn't. So the team in West Virginia made a, a, a day trip or a, a game trip up in, up into Ohio, three hours away. The uh, athletic director of Coastal Carolina, uh, Matt Hogue, called me. It must have been about 10 at night. had just come out of the ballpark on the bus, and he basically said, okay, can you do the games? Would you come on and do the games? And, again, I'm just kind of paraphrasing what he said. So I'm sitting on a bus in Ohio. And I said, well, what are your plans? He said, well, this is like a Tuesday night. He said, we'll leave uh, Thursday. So I quickly seized the moment and realized I'd better do this. And one of the coaches looked at me and said, I can't believe you're even hesitating. Now, in hindsight, I wouldn't hesitate. So I went back to West Virginia, uh, got up the next morning, drove home to Myrtle Beach, South Carolina on Wednesday, and got on the plane with Coastal Carolina on a Thursday. They flew out to Omaha and uh, wound up staying there the full time. Uh, Two weeks, they went to maximum. They won five elimination games, as I remember, and beat um, the University of Arizona for the uh, College World Series championship. And I was sitting there numerous nights going, well, this place is packed. The the stadium seats 25,000, 26,000. But just to show you a good example how uh, not only sports life in general will humble you if you don't try to be humble and keep humble yourself 25,000 people and the college world series one night 48 hours later I was back with that team in West Virginia and they were playing somewhere and there may have been you know 10 or 15 people in the stands so quite a contrast in about 48 hours Um, but it it was an incredible experience but whether it's 10 or 15 people in the stands or 25,000 or however many are there I truly uh, tried and still try not to take it for granted. Uh, so when I was sitting there in Omaha, I was acutely aware of this was a great, great uh, privilege to be doing that and probably once in a lifetime. But as I said, two or three days later with those small crowds in the summer collegiate league, I was just as appreciative. You just It's a cliche, but you have to keep things kind of in balance. Yeah, absolutely. And I'd love to talk to you about your time in uh, professional baseball because that's where our paths cross. I'll, tr- I'll try to put it in chronological order here. I've got uh, your time first in the South Atlantic League in uh, Fayetteville, North Carolina. You were with the Tigers A affiliate. And uh, and uh, I, I, I'm curious how fun it must have been to call games down in Fayetteville, North Carolina. Well, there again is an academic tie-in. I was uh, uh, in Chicago working on a degree at Wheaton College and really wanted to do some baseball. And the gentleman down there hired me in Fayetteville. I went to Fayetteville um, uh, just as thrilled as I could be, John, to, to be doing those games uh, in, in the old J.P. Riddle Stadium, which is still still there. Uh, they had one coach I grew close to, a man named Dwight Lowry, who had played at the University of North Carolina, had been on the 84 84- Tigers World Series team, uh, a wonderful man. Uh, he died a few years later up in Jamestown, New York, uh, when he was managing another team, a farm team of the Tigers. And some years later, uh, with the West Virginia Miners, that collegiate team I mentioned previously, I actually had a chance with that team to go to Jamestown, New York, and it was kind of emotional in a, in a nice way to, to go to the same ballpark in the same town where that gentleman, Mr. Dwight Lowry, had died. So I had that memory from Fayetteville as well as many, many others, but just, you know, just the, the thought of, of, of being there and doing the pro baseball, I really, really enjoyed it. And uh, it kept moving. And then I went to Knoxville, double A after that. Absolutely. Before I talk about Knoxville, I got to ask you about Jamestown because I went out there many times with the Lowell Spinners when the Jamestown Jammers were in the uh, New York Penn League, and and that's quite the interesting town, isn't it? That's the home of Lucille Ball, and uh, not a whole lot to do in Jamestown unless you have a car. <laughs> well, I I vividly remember this is just a couple of years ago. We actually stayed in a suburb called I believe it's pronounced Falconer, right, uh, New York, right. which is which is next door. And, 
and uh, it is home to Lucille Ball. Jamestown is. And I clearly uh, remember, uh, I'm assuming we're in the same ballpark, the light standards, the light poles uh, in Jamestown were, were, were works of art. They must have been put there during the you know, FDR administration. There were these really high, magnificent structures. So much of it. I remember I just took a video of them with my phone. Um, but I remember James, I remember about every ballpark pretty, pretty vividly. Um, in fact, I, when someone mentions some, some locale, I tend to connect it with baseball and I counted one day, I think, I think I've broadcast baseball in 22 States, 21 for sure. The 22nd might be, I'd have to go back and double check, but I was, I was just going over one day, how many States. I've, I've had the privilege to broadcast baseball, uh, you know, in as far north as, <clears throat> excuse me, oh gosh, uh, 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 Michigan, uh, uh, Traverse City, as far west as in the Pioneer League with uh, the Idaho Falls be the furthest west. So, uh, I, I, again, I go back to what I said before. I, I have felt, I still feel very humble to have had all those opportunities. Quite frankly, hope there's some ahead of me. Absolutely. And uh, Gary, what you got to do is you got to get yourself a U.S. wall map and then you got to stick pins <laughs> in the states that you've done, because that's what I've done for hockey and, and baseball and I mean, a little bit of basketball as well. And uh, it's really cool to have that visual uh, representation. But, uh, you know, from Fayetteville, you went to Knoxville, you were with the Blue Jays double A team, 93 and 94, and uh, that was in the Southern League. So uh, talk about that if, for a minute, if you will. The Toronto Blue Jays won the World Series. I, right, I think I'm remembering this correctly. Back to back, '93 and '94. That's one of those years. The great home run by Joe Carter, and uh, one of those teams in Knoxville was absolutely loaded. You had a guy named Carlos Delgado who went on to play years and years in major league in the major leagues. A pitcher named Aaron Small later pitched the Yankees. A guy named Ben Weber who was on the, what was it, 92, whenever Anaheim or Los Angeles Angels, whatever they were going by at that time, they won the World Series. Um, uh, a lot of guys on those that team uh, went on to the major leagues, had a first baseman. I believe the next year, a guy named Chris Winky. Well, Chris Winky uh, went on to play at Florida State, uh, then was a quarterback, a quarterback at Florida State, and was a quarterback for the Carolina Panthers. There were so many people. So many guys on those two teams, 93, 94 in Knoxville. And uh, it was, I believe it was 94. Uh, those listening can Google this. Uh, it was the year that Michael, Michael Jordan had his year in baseball. That's right. the year he went to play for the Birmingham Barons. And uh, I remember the league said, okay, tickets will go on sale, whatever, Monday at 10 o'clock. Everybody be manning the phones. And uh, we did, and, and Michael sold out, I think, every every uh, city in that league um, every time he went there. So, I, you know, I had that memory. I hadn't even thought about that. He just brought up Knoxville. And in early April, watching Michael Jordan, uh, I wouldn't say his baseball uh, skills were yet blossomed. But when I saw him later in August, totally different story which is credit to how much of an athlete that man really is he had right. learned a lot uh, about how to play the game of baseball which also in between the lines we often think one an athlete great in one sport is going to translate to the other and it may not necessarily necessarily be the case and i don't want to put words in michael jordan's mouth but i i think i read one time that he kind of uh, came out and said well look baseball is a little bit harder uh, than, than maybe even I thought it was. So I had that memory and uh, uh, really enjoyed Knoxville, uh, a beautiful area of the country. You know, Knoxville, Tennessee is not a big city. It's not a small city. It's just about perfect size. So I enjoyed my time there. I really did. And I think it's fascinating. You also went out to Idaho and Montana in the Pioneer League for the uh, Great Falls Voyagers, uh, the White Sox rookie team in 2008. That must have been a big thrill as well. Uh, talk about the experience it was uh, driving out there and, and ultimately doing games in that beautiful part of the country. Well, that all started with a, a, a scout named Jim Crawford. A lot of people in baseball know him. That he's known as Craw Daddy. Uh, he's now retired. And we would keep in touch. And he'd call me or I'd call him 
and I'd always say, hey, Crawdaddy, where are you? He'd say, I'm in, you know, Mississippi or I'm in Florida, wherever he was scouting. And then one night he said, well, I'm out here in Montana. And I was kind of, uh, you know, uh, whining and crying, oh, Jim, I'd like to do some baseball next year. And he said, why don't you come out here and do this, the great balls team? And I said, well, I mean, it's, you know, it's not quite that easy, is it? Well, he put me in touch with a man named Jim Kehoe, the general manager. Uh, Jim Kehoe and I struck up a conversation. He was a delightful guy and proved to be just that to work for. And and if you know my wife, she grew up in Venezuela, which has produced many, many great baseball players. But I wouldn't say she's uh, maybe an ardent sports fan. So I'm on the phone with Jim one night, and I said, well, you know, Jim, I need to work. We all need to work. And how about my wife? He didn't even hesitate. He said, yeah, we'll make her an usher. There you go. And I, I thought, I thought, well, I'm on a roll. I said, how about a uh, 14-year-old girl, my daughter? He said, yeah, we'll put her in the concession stand. <laughs> so I had roped, I had roped those two into two jobs uh, before even asking them. And uh, and then when we got there, my son was 12, and Jim and he struck up what I call an independent business partnership. Because, as you know, in batting practice, some of those balls clear the outfield fences and all this stuff. And the Pioneer League, I think, wanted to save some of theirs, so they would recruit, recoup some of those. And, and Jim gave my son, Nathan, 50 cents a ball to go get the, some of those balls. Wow. So the first night, Nathan, yeah, Nathan comes up, shows me, and I said, well, you know what? I said, I'm not going to remember these every night. So I got a little notebook, and every night he'd tell me, and I'd, I'd, I'd note it down. And I believe he made like $400 working that summer. So we all worked. And then we did drive. Driving out there was, was oh, I, it was such a such a treat. We drove what I call the southern route across Interstate 40, which goes all the way to California if you want to go. Stopped in Memphis. Um, went to Sun Studios, famous Sun Studios where Elvis recorded. And many people have recorded. Got my Sun Studios T-shirt. We went down to the Lorraine Motel where uh, Martin Luther King Jr. was shot. I went on to, I believe, Arkansas, and then maybe the next night or next night after that uh, to Albuquerque. I told you my wife is one of seven. I, I said I've got brothers and sisters-in-laws all, all over. Right. And so we stayed, we stayed with Chris in Albuquerque. And from Albuquerque to the Grand Canyon, I had never seen the Grand Canyon, and I wanted to do you know some of the all-American things. Was was I think about a four or five hour drive. It was very very doable. So we went to the Grand Canyon, saw the Grand Canyon, uh, and then made our way north up to Utah. I knew I'd be coming back to Utah with the team. On up into Idaho, hang uh, you know hang it east or go northeast and on into Great Falls. And uh, then at the end of the summer. We drove back kind of the northern route coming to South Dakota. Uh, well, we went to what left from Casper, Wyoming. I went to Devil's Tower, wanted to see that. Uh, on over into uh, uh, South Dakota to do this in one day and went to Mount Rushmore, which, which absolutely fascinated me. Mount, Mush, Mount Rushmore really, I thought, was great. I don't remember being complicated. There's a walkway. You walk down and look up and see the presence and came on east back to uh wanted to stop in madison wisconsin because that's where my wife went to college and then uh, hooked and came down the east coast and back home and in between broadcast games for the great falls voyagers and uh, uh at that time they had teams in helena missoula uh, billings uh great falls and then one in casper wyoming which is no longer in the league then the idaho falls team and I'm leaving somebody out. Oh, two teams in Utah, Orem and Ogden. So um, I just, I mean, I really, really, I've been saying this over and over, but I really would use this wording again. I really appreciated going out west. The geography is just wonderful. I thoroughly enjoyed it. And then, of course, broadcasting baseball in a new locale, uh, was which it, it just it gives it invigorates me, John. I know you you know what I'm talking about. 
Yes, indeed I do. And, uh, you know, we're not even done talking about uh, the minor leagues because you had a couple of more stops. Uh, you went to the Frontier League in 2010. That's where we crossed paths. You were in normal Illinois with the normal Corn Belters. That was their first year. You broadcast out of a ballpark called the Corn Crib. That was my one and only season in Florence, Kentucky with the Florence Freedom. I went to Florence after two years in Kalamazoo, but we met in 2010. And uh, I know you had some uh, favorable memories of the Frontier League. That was uh, a good league to be a part of. It was, and it it came about because the first general manager of the Myrtle Beach Pelicans, that, that's that's how I moved to Myrtle Beach, a, a man named Steve Malliette, who is from Wisconsin, he had left. I hadn't seen him or heard from him in a couple of years, and I started to keep in touch with him. And he was running a team uh, in the Frontier League. I think there, it was in Missouri. I've forgotten the name. But at that time, he'd come over to the normal corn belters. And um, I don't remember the specifics, but we agreed that I would come up and broadcast the games. So uh, I've, uh, I've opened three ballparks. Let me see if I can remember them. In the Pioneer League, I did the first game of the new stadium in Billings, Montana. I christened the Myrtle Beach Pelicans ballpark here and also did the first game in the Frontier League with the normal Corn Belters. And what I remember about that ballpark, it was, it was, brand, I mean, it was brand new, right? It was great. But uh, they started on the road, and the, the, the people building the press box and the stadium said, oh, yes, there'll be windows. Well, when I came back, John, I don't know if you remember this, there were windows. They were brand new, but they didn't open. Yes, I <laughs> do remember that. Yes, I do, yeah. <laughs> so I had to run a, a long microphone cord out around the press box every night and tape it to the wall to get the ambiance. And uh, we always kind of got a chuckle out of that. In fact, <clears throat> I had two interns with me. One of, one of them, uh, a man named Blake uh, uh, Bloodworth. In fact, I just exchanged texts with him last night. We still keep in touch. And uh, we, we reminisce about the corn belters from time to time. And then I remember, of course, that's where I met you in Florence, Kentucky. I can still see that hotel where we stayed in Florence, Kentucky kind of had a uh, – like a theme, like uh, palm trees or something in the rooms or on the decor. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to think of the name of that place. Uh, it'll come to me, though, in a minute. <laughs> and then I do remember walking across the street. Uh, uh, you were over there. We met with some others at a, at, a, at, a, at a, a bar across the street from that hotel. Yeah, that was so Shakey's. Shakey's, remember? <laughs> yeah. Uh, that place, I, I loved that place because it was open till three o'clock in the morning. So you went, you could easily go across the street and have a bite and a beer afterwards. That was uh, the best, best bar, uh, bar food I've ever had in, in all my time in baseball. Oh, wow. You, I hope Shakey says, uh, thank you for, uh, for that uh, reference. Yeah, they're actually closed down. They've been closed down for for a while now. But, uh, uh, yeah, th those were some fun times. I was in that league for three years. Very uh, grateful to have the chance to meet you uh, in 2010. We're talking with Gary Griffith, longtime sportscaster and college professor. And, uh, Gary, before we move on to the next topic, we'll finish up with your uh, time in the minor leagues. You went to the Appalachian League in 2013. Uh, you uh, broadcast for Princeton. And I'm uh, curious to get your thoughts of your time in the Appy League. Oh, it was great. Again, another uh, dear memory. I'm over in Newberry, South Carolina. I broadcast their basketball and their baseball for a number of years. Probably we'll do it again this year. Last year, but because of the COVID uh, situation, the, the basketball just kind of fell through the cracks. I did do some of their baseball. But this is going back six or seven, eight years ago. I'm in the hotel getting ready to go to do a broadcast a basketball game. The phone rings. This man named Jim Holland the longtime general manager of the Princeton Rays. Now, listen to this. This guy remembered, not a text, not an email. He remembered a letter that I had written him like maybe three or four years prior to that. Wow. He remembered that. Yeah, I know. He remembered that, called me up, long story short. He said, would you like to you know, come up and broadcast the Princeton Rays? Well, I, I don't even remember hesitating. And uh, they were at that time a farm team of the Tampa Bay Rays, uh, went to Princeton, West Virginia. And I believe Princeton, maybe Princeton and Bluefield, which is right down the road. I believe Princeton at that time 
had the 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 uh, the bragging rights, if you will, or were known. I think I'm pretty sure they were the smallest town in America with a pro baseball team. Now, Kinston, North Carolina, which was in the same league with Myrtle Beach for years and years and years, I think they were the smallest town in America with a full 140 game schedule. But Princeton, West Virginia, probably has nine, ten thousand people. Nice ballpark. Um, uh, enjoyed my time there. Jim Holland was a good guy to work for. Um, I went back three years uh, consecutively after that and worked for that collegiate summer league team. So I have quite a connection with West Virginia and keep in touch with a lot of those men up there, just as I've kept in touch with you. That's great stuff, Gary. It's fascinating to hear about your travels and, and all the baseball you've done around the country. Really, really is. Um, I, before we get into uh, your book, I, I, I know you've done games for Newberry College, basketball and baseball, 2011 you started. Are you still involved with that? Oh, yeah. Uh, well, as I said last year, quite frankly, it just got so complicated. I didn't do any basketball for Newberry. Uh, I think I will this year. Things are still, you know, people are still trying to decide what they're going to do and what what they're not going to do. But there again, uh, gosh, 2011, I'm sitting around. This is probably April. I somehow read that the the announcer for Newberry had had he left. He left. So I've never been shy about contacting people because all people can do is say no. Right. So I called. Um, I can't remember whether I called the, the college or the radio station. I think I called the college. The athletic director at that time was Brad Edwards. Now, Brad Edwards won the Super Bowl with the Washington Redskins. He's from, watch this tie in. Brad played high school football in Fayetteville, North Carolina, where I you know, broadcast. Right, right. Went to South Carolina, went, played all those years with the Redskins in Minnesota, and he lived in Columbia. He was the athletic director. As I remember, unsolicited, I sent him some audio. He sent it over to a man named Mr. Jimmy Coggins at a station there in Newberry. Um, now, I don't really know Brad Edwards, but I've never forgotten that he did that. He sent that my material to, to Mr. Coggins. Mr. Coggins called me up, or I called him up. It's been a while, and uh, we talked about it, and I said, well, I'll come over there and talk to you. He did. And I've been doing the basketball for Newberry and their baseball, a lot of their baseball, ever since that moment. And it, again, is a unique situation. Newberry College is, is, is what's well, a small town. It's a small college. But Mr. Coggins' uh, father started that station, oh, gosh, 70 years ago. And uh, it, 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 what Jimmy does, and this is my opinion, Jimmy runs WCHL uh, and the sports like uh, like at ESPN, he really does a good job. He does all their football broadcasts. I've been doing their basketball and their baseball. And for a school, a small school like Newberry, which is a great conference called the SAC Conference uh, here in North Carolina and, and Virginia. It's got teams in Tennessee. But um, he really gives them great exposure, putting on all their football, their basketball, and baseball. So uh, that's been a great experience too, and he's just he's a he's a he's been very easy to work with. Um, you can appreciate this. He has a really quality equipment. Uh, and once he showed me how it worked, it was amazing. <laughs> it was great. So uh, still involved with Newberry, and, and really appreciate what what they've done too, or what I've been able to do for them. Great stuff. Let's talk about your book, Meandering Through the Minor Leagues. I had a chance to read it, finished it last night. It was a fascinating book, and it talks really at great length about the types of people you meet when you're uh, off broadcasting in minor league baseball. It talks about everybody from the scoreboard operator to the grounds crew, uh, and you really you really give a great uh, sense of what the behind-the-scenes stuff is like, and that's what I try to do here on the podcast. I try to get my audience to understand that types of those types of things and uh, so tell us a little about your book and how you came to write it well you your review is exactly uh, what it is I, I i did and would leave it to the beat writers to talk about games in particular there's not an article in that book about the score you know this team beat this team three to two and and this guy had a home run 
what a, what that book is is taking baseball and life really in general as a filter to see uh, really life, see people. And as you accurately said, there are articles in there about the scoreboard operator, the grounds crew keeper. Uh, and then at the end of the book, I even updated it with, a, with, with at that time, uh, an interview with, say, a lifeguard here in Myrtle Beach. So it was more than just baseball. But it goes back to when I was working with the Pelicans, I was just kind of brainstorming. I called up one of the local papers. I said, hey, can I write an article? And I think the gentleman said for free. And I thought, no, thanks. You know, I, I, I mean, it, I probably would have done it, but I thought I want to get paid to be a professional. Because I yeah. remember the gentleman called me back and said, okay, I'll give you, it wasn't much, maybe $25. I said, you're on. So about, for, for about four or five years from April through September, during the season, I would write a weekly a column. There was a scoreboard, there was a scoreboard operator for the Pelicans named Mr. Ray Wern, a longtime coach, a history teacher in Long Island, retired and was living here. Of course, Myrtle Beach is made up of everybody from the Northeast. Everybody's, you know, a lot of people are retired and live here. And he was one of those, one of those dear people. But he loved, he loved baseball, was a Yankees fan. And we became dear friends. He died this past April. In fact, I, uh, not conducted, but kind of oversaw his funeral. He had asked me to do that some years ago. And I, I said, well, sure, Ray, I'll do it. Well, in fact, I, I was honored to do it. But Ray, being an educator and a baseball fan, would kind of nudge me over the years and say, hey, why don't you write a book? And I would, you know, I didn't think much about it. And then one day I thought, okay, I'm going to collect all these things. So what I did, and really it was kind of easier for me, it wasn't like I sat down and constructed a book from beginning to end. I went back and I had saved a lot of articles uh, written in, in the newspaper. There's one article that I had published about my time out in Montana that was published in Big Sky Journal, a publication out in Montana. So I drew all these sources. I cleaned it up as best as I could and compiled them into that book and uh, uh, got very favorable reviews on it, except for I do remember one person said, well, this guy tends to repeat himself. And I thought, well, no, I say up front that this book may in fact repeat itself because I had several articles in the book on, you know, by design on a pitching coach named Bruce Dow Canton, a very dear right. man, yep. incredibly knowledgeable baseball man, well known in baseball circles as a great pitching coach. So, uh, I knew there were a couple of articles in there about Bruce, but that was, you know, that was by design. But that's what that book was about. Uh, the, the 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 picture, everything has a story. The picture on the uh, the cover, it looks like it's staged, and it re it really isn't. That goes back to that year I knew you. That was in Normal, Illinois. Uh, I had come to the back of the broadcast booth to take a break. The interns were on. I'm sure I was on the wife with my phone on the phone with my wife. The team photographer snapped that photo. I didn't even know it. <laughs> she came. She came. She came to us a couple of days later and said, "Hey guys, I'm just going to throw these pictures out. Delete them. You want them?" And I said, "Yeah, I'll take them." Well, two or three years later, I grabbed one of those photos that she had taken. I thought, "Well, this will look nice on the cover of the book." I had a buddy here who was able to airbrush out uh, the the normal logo on the shirt so they wouldn't, you know be upset and, and he did uh so that photo is from my time in the frontier league and putting that book together uh was i just compiled all those articles um i remember some of them vividly uh for instance the cheesesteak chronicles i had mentioned my buddy dr doug challenger who lives in amherst he grew up in delaware and delaware and philadelphia as everybody knows just about everybody knows tremendous cheesesteaks yep so there Absolutely. was a guy there was a guy at the ballpark in Wilmington, Delaware, out on the concourse. The gentleman, I believe, was an engineer during the day, a white-collar job, had this kiosk where he cooked cheesesteaks at night, struck up a friendship with him, and every night after the game, he'd have me one or two, and I'd take them, enjoy them on the bus, and go back to the hotel. So I remember that article. Um, but as I said, your, your review is exactly what it is. Uh, in that situation, baseball, as, as a mirror to see people, you know, 
just in life, and I think that applies to more than just sports. There's just there's so many great stories around it. There really are. In yeah, fact, I, in my, yeah. in my I was going to say, in my opinion, that's why we're talking. Is you know, you, I bumped in you. And I thought, wow, this guy's this is a good guy right here, John Leahy. Uh, I might see him next week. I might not see him for three or four weeks, but you know, there there's a story right there. Absolutely, and uh, I, I also. It, was reading about uh, you, you guys searching for food in Michigan at two uh, thirty in the morning, and and I can totally, re- <laughs> I can totally relate to that because uh, you know you know how important the food is to the ball players, and you're sometimes you're searching for food, and uh, you know so th- that that really uh, struck a chord with me. Um, I, I wanted to talk uh, before we wrap up, Gary. I, I also wanted to talk about uh, your uh, college teaching. You're an associate professor of speech communication at Francis Marion University. You teach basics of oral communication and uh, introduction to sports broadcasting. So, uh, talk about how that all started and how rewarding that is to be involved uh, teaching. Let me start with the speech. Many times, well, I don't know if academics would agree with me or they may get upset, but. Uh, in communications or convergence or what, whatever the most popular term is now uh, for schools of communication, many times mass communication and speech communication, they're kind of separate tracks. Um, and then, you know, it hit me one day that, gee, when I'm, when I'm broadcasting games, what are, the, what are the nuts and bolts? You know, what are the bricks in the wall? There's your metaphor. Well, it's oral communication. It's speech. So it's been another wonderful blend in my life of putting those two together when, in fact, my graduate degree was more in math communication than speech. But, uh, again, a great story there. Uh, the guy who – the gentleman who hired me was a man named uh, Don Stewart. Uh, I, had, I had talked to him uh, looking for a little part-time work for teaching speech. Nothing came about. And then one day he called me and said, can you come out here and talk to my sports class? This was during the summer. I said, sure. We talked and he said, well, uh, would you like to teach one or two speech courses? I said, yeah, sure. And then I think he called me next day and said, well, can you handle four? And Don said, just take it, kind of get your foot in door. So that's how that started uh, at Francis, at Francis Marion. And I might add that Don was a, just a huge Pittsburgh Pirates fan. This guy, he grew up in Pittsburgh. This gentleman had uh, Pittsburgh Pirate media guides from 40 years ago. I mean, he really, cool. really was a Pirate fan. Um, and, and, and one thing led to another. I started there as what they call full-time, part-time. And uh, then by the next year, it was full-time, full-time. And I never formally interviewed uh, at Francis Marion. And what I mean by formally interviewed, I have interviewed other academic at academic institutions, and it's a day-long process. So I'm very grateful that I was able to just kind of transition into Francis Marion and uh, have been there ever since, and teaching, as you said, speech, or they call it basics of oral communication, because if you use the word speech, people kind of clam up because public speaking is always rated as, um, on some surveys, the number one fear some people have. Right, and then the introduction of uh, I taught introduction to sports broadcasting, um, uh, a class called sports media and society, and one called covering sports. But the intro to sports broadcasting, I used a textbook that you're well aware of, called "The Art of Sports Casting" by a man named Tom Hedrick. Yeah, best best book in the market. Yep. Yep. Yeah, yeah. It. I, I think you'll agree. It really doesn't read like a textbook. It's an enjoyable read as well as very instructional. Yeah, it sure is. And I think anybody who uh, is serious about starting a career in sports broadcasting should have that in their uh, in their bookshelf, certainly. Well, Gary, before we wrap it up, uh, I wanted to touch on one other thing. It, uh, according to my notes here, it says uh, you've also been a, a United Methodist minister and a beach concessions manager. Is that correct down in Myrtle Beach? Absolutely. When I was working on my graduate degree at the University of Southern Mississippi, my graduate students are always looking for work. Um, I had, uh, talked to the, I believe the Presbyterian denomination about being a, uh, you know, it's like being a substitute teacher. They, they need people. Well, th- that didn't work out. And then the United Methodist office was on a uh, district office at that time was on the campus of Southern Mississippi. 
And on the spur of the moment, I pulled in, went upstairs, and, and talked to this gentleman. He did not complicate it. I still remember his name. His name was uh, Hank Winstead. Next day, he called me and said, hey, guess what? I could use you out at this place in the country called Baptist United Methodist Church. I went out there. I would go out there just on Sundays and preach. A year later, he gave me another assignment at a place called Souls Chapel. It was this uh, much larger structure out in another uh, part out from Hattiesburg, very beautiful old white church. And so I did that for about, uh, I want to say, two years maybe. Um, um, and then the, uh, the, the you're asking me about the United Methodist, what was that second part? Oh, you were a beach concessions manager. Oh, that. <laughs> John, I really, truly was. Now, here's your, <laughs> here's your sports connection with that. There was a, a man in the front office of Myrtle Beach Pelicans named Mike Junga, kid from uh, Ohio, big Detroit fan. Well, Junga had left the Pelicans. We all had by that time. He had a full-time, year-round job, municipal job with the city of North Myrtle Beach. He was their beach services manager. Over the winter, we would talk about it. He kind of chuckled, and I said, well, don't laugh. I may be actually be calling for a job. Well, about March... I called him. He gave me a job. So I would drive up and down a certain section of North Myrtle Beach, literally on the beach, in a Ford Ranger truck. It had North Myrtle Beach lifeguards on the side and the city steel on the side. And what we would do, was we, we, were, we would oversee not the lifeguards, but the kids who rented the umbrellas and sold the lemonade. And it was a fascinating job. It, it really was a very cool job. Um, I did it. 2007 went out to Montana in 2008, came back in 2009, and had that job a second time. So, um, uh, as I said when we started, I've, I've been a kind of flying under the radar, and certainly it's been a circuitous route the way these things have all tied together. Well, my job here is to bring you up and over the radar because you are a fascinating guy, and boy, it's been so much fun listening uh, to your your exploits and your travels. Where can people find your book, Gary, and and, and how can they purchase it? Uh, well, let's see. There might be a few copies. No, <laughs> it's it is on Amazon. It's called Meandering Through the Minor Leagues. Um, I yeah, I would just go to Amazon. Uh, you you can purchase it there. Uh, that'd be the easiest way. It's, as far as I know, still there. And um, I'd, sure, I'd, I'd appreciate if people would do that. That'd be great. Uh, thank you for uh, advertising it, so to speak. Not a problem, Gary. And I know you and I talk quite a bit about the industry, and we, we help each other out with uh, you know, looking to find work. And, and I certainly hope that uh, there is some broadcasting work uh, ahead for you because uh, the, the profession is so much richer when you're involved with it. And uh, I know how passionate you are about it as I am. And uh, uh, we, we, we're both looking out for each other. And, and you know, like I said, I, I really hope that something comes your way. And I want to thank you for spending some time with us today, Gary. I, I know our audience is going to really enjoy it. And, uh, and I wish you the best of luck moving forward. You are very welcome, and you're right. We do look out for each other. That applies to many areas in life, and sports in particular. When I see jobs that I think will interest you or others, I do try to remember people. And then I, I come across some, and I'll think, well, John, this wouldn't, you know, this wouldn't, he wouldn't be interested in this. But I, I appreciate you looking out for me. I look out for you, and hope I hope they'll look out for many, many others. Uh, thank you very much for having me on your broadcast, on your a podcast, pardon me. Well, Gary, it's a real thrill, and, and I look forward to talking with you down the road. Uh, coming up next week on the podcast, we're going to visit with an old friend who uh, I've had on the podcast before. He's a legend in college hockey up here, Bernie Corbett, the voice of the Boston University Terriers, the radio voice, will be joining me next week. You've been listening to Airing It Out Files from Leahy's Broadcast Booth with my very special guest, Gary Griffith. Thanks for tuning in, and we will talk to you next week. The Ted Williams Camp alumni is raising funds for the Jimmy Fund. Each time they have surpassed their goal, and for their 2022 event, they hope to do the same. They are looking for any and all donations, such as items, services, tickets, gift cards, etc., for their ongoing online auction and their in-person auction at their main event. 
If any businesses would be willing to have a canister or host a fundraising event, they'd love to get you on the schedule. Thank you in advance for your support. Feel free to contact Favoloso Weddings and Events or Joe LaRusso on Facebook for any information or questions. The Jimmy Fund, supporting Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Hello, hockey fans. I'm Dan Rusinowski. Mitochondrial disease is a rare multi-symptom disease characterized by breakdowns in the mitochondria, which are specialized compartments that are present in every cell of the body except red blood cells and are responsible for creating more than 90% of the energy needed by the body to sustain life and support growth. A disease most commonly associated with children, currently there is no cure, just management of symptoms. Hugs for Mito Incorporated is mitochondrial disease, rare disease advocacy, awareness, fundraising for research trials, and hopefully a cure. To learn more, please visit hugsformito.org.